This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey everyone, I'm Aisha Harris from Pop Culture Happy Hour. Our team is off today, so we're bringing you an episode of NPR's It's Been a Minute. Every week, our pal Brittany Luce talks with people in the culture who deserve your attention and wraps the week with journalists in the know. This episode is about the Kardashians, and whether you're into them or not, one thing is definitely true. You can't avoid them. So Brittany unpacks how the Kardashian family went from Hollywood D-listers to an American institution. The episode also includes a look at the celebrity skincare syndicate. What are all these people trying to sell us and what are they buying? Enjoy the show. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Okay, so I haven't kept up with the Kardashians in about 10 years. But if you are plugged into culture in any way at all, they're unavoidable. Not only have they launched themselves to the heights of American celebrity and society, they've amassed an astounding amount of real power. The Kardashian Enterprise makes just as many headlines for a Halloween costume reveal as it does for famous ex-husbands who go on anti-Semitic rants. Kim Kardashian could just as easily find an audience in the Oval Office as she can convince millions of people to buy into her product lines. It's made me wonder if the Kardashians are deserving of a title we usually reserve for folks who live in the White House. Would you say that the Kardashians are America's family? I think they are. I think that's MJ Corey. On social media, she goes by the handle Kardashian Colloquium. That's colloquium with a K. They're America's family in the same sense that the Kennedys were, which the Kardashians have really tried mm. to situate themselves accordingly, and in the Trump sense. So in like the most like utopian, idealized sense and in the most dystopian sense. MJ also runs a newsletter where she applies media theory to the antics of the Kardashian family. So I asked her, how did a family with only vague connections to America's elite make themselves an American institution? Two quick notes. This conversation includes mentions of sex and a description of armed robbery. Also, I originally talked to MJ in mid-September, before Kanye went on his hate speech-fueled public meltdown. So later on in the show, I'll check in with MJ to discuss how that collides with the Kardashian mythology. But first, I want to go back to a time when the Kardashians were just beginning their climb to dominance. I'd like to dig into how we got here. Mm-hmm. So like when I think of like a major turning point in the Kardashian empire, my mind goes right to the episode of Keeping Up with the Kardashians from 2012. I think we all know it. Um, where Kanye and a stylist clean out Kim's closet to refill it with clothes that Kanye wants what Kim to wear. Is, is it so bad to keep things? Yeah, you gotta like really clean out everything. It felt like we were watching the family get their celebrity status upgraded 
in real time. Yes. And at that point, like to me, it felt like the Kardashians were in serious decline, like mm-hmm. in the early 2010s. Like Kim had two failed marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, they seemed like they were struggling to stay relevant as celebrities. So Kim Ye going public at that time to me, especially Kanye appearing on the show, mm-hmm. I felt like that really breathed new life into the franchise. Oh, yeah. Kanye was a major turning point. And what's interesting is the Kardashians will even beat us to that narrative. Like, Mm. they innovated this classic dynamic of, like, the artist and the muse kind of thing. And I think people love that, Mm. you know? And we're speaking of it like this symbolic moment. But it feels this way because it was included in the show in such a curated way. Like, Nassim Taleb, who wrote The Black Swan, he's a a statistician and like a theorist and he kind of talks about how we're naturally inclined to compress things into narratives and that's how myths are made you know because she kept a lot of that stuff i think the story in the show went that he trashed all of it but it was all you know saved in an archive for her (laughs) so there was i think intentionality even in the display of that scene and what it was messaging for us you know what i mean (laughs) oh my gosh i know You said uh, that you can't narrow the turning point where the Kardashians yes. became an institution down to only one moment. But yeah. what's like a major moment in the Kardashian timeline for you that really cemented their institutional status? Her fairy tale wedding with Chris Humphreys. million people tuned in to part one of it and then 4 million to the part two. Um, it reminds me of like the JFK funeral, like, it manifested the power of TV to involve an entire population and a ritual process. Ooh. And I think that's true for a wedding too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I literally, I just got married like four or five months ago and I would say that's absolutely true. Yeah. The Kardashians have made a business also of these like really traditional family milestones that are actually so everyday. How much people paid for exclusive photos and their pictures right. from the bridal shower. It was a whole machine. So I think the 72-day marriage was already this televised event of a personal experience being made very public. And then it was very controversial because Kim had to go on like an apology tour when it didn't work out. So right. using public shaming, um, failure, and scandal to remain relevant. And then Kanye sweeps in and makes it all better. I mean, it's an incredible myth. Yeah. But it's interesting, like, I feel like they almost provide a playbook for how media narratives are spun. I think that so many other institutions are doing the exact same thing. Yes. They're just not necessarily as naked about it and then can't quite be studied in the same way. Totally. There's a book I really like called United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and a Post-Truth America. And it really breaks down the different media strategies that Trump used to kind of weaponize the press to achieve dominance. And it's a lot of media swerves, like when people are kind of like honing in on a mistake he made or something wrong he did. He will start discourse about, did Obama do it that way? Did he not? What's right or wrong about that? So media swerves are a big thing. The Kardashians also do. I think a good example of that is after Astroworld, which they were kind of taking heat for because of Kylie Jenner's proximity to Travis Scott. Right. They kind of were frozen in time and didn't do anything or say anything for a few days. And then Kylie went to a friend's wedding wearing a very revealing Revealing dress. Revealing dress. Yes. Yes, I remember. And and for those unfamiliar, we're talking about the Astroworld Festival last November, where 10 audience members died at Travis Scott's concert. Travis Scott, of course, is the father of Kylie Jenner's kids. But then it was actually Kendall who put on this outfit. Because of that, the conversation became 
should someone wear this type of revealing dress to their friend's wedding? Exactly. That that was a media swerve one. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the thing about Empire's institutions is that like they endure yeah. strategy and long-range planning. Yes. Something else that I've been thinking about a lot, as this family business has progressed, motherhood has become a huge part of the Kardashian brand. It actually feels like the central focus of their Hulu show, The Kardashians, which is now in its second season. Um, I wonder if or how you see this focus on motherhood narratives as a part of their institutional playbook. I so appreciate you bringing that up. It's such a factor. And I think Kim Ye reflected, but then also subverted very old school nuclear era ideals of family, the American mm-hmm. family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's this intersection of really like classic consumer images of the family that we were seeing in the 50s. For example, in the Paris episode in 2016, when Kim was robbed in Paris and then mm-hmm. re- Keeping Up with the Kardashians has a whole episode reconstructing that trauma. And then the guy came and grabbed the phone for me, threw me on the bed. And I was like, this is it. There's this, a montage on that episode where they're really playing out those roles. Kim is saying, I begged them not to kill me because I'm a mother and I have children. Mm. And Kanye says, you know, they knew not to kill you because they knew I wouldn't rest until I found them and killed them myself or something to that effect. Yeah, so they yeah, really yeah. play those like the husband is the protector. Mm-hmm. The wife has her life has meaning because she's in relation to a family. A nurturer, you know? right, right, right. Yes. And I think that there's been a challenge kind of leveled at their critics for boxing Kim in as this sex tape sort of hoe when she's also a mother and has all these traditional values. Right, right, right. She straddled the Madonna horror paradigm in like a really unforeseen way, I think. And the fact that it was a brush with tragedy that allowed Kim proximity to a kind of iconism that we we associate with the Marilyns and the Jackie O's. And right. The, so I think that it got her close without having to like actually. Actually kick the bucket. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a wild because like I was looking the other day at some quote of hers where she said she gets horny from cleaning her children's <laughs> playroom. Like she's like all moms can relate just when their playroom's clean. Like I can finally relax. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so wild. Cause I'm like, it just feels like Mad Men era <laughs> advertising copy. Totally. But it also feels like this motherhood project specifically for yes. Kim is like a culmination of the sort of like re shaping the narrative about herself post-sex tape. She's every interview, she's like, I don't believe in children without marriage. And yes. that's interesting, like that she was able to achieve that while having this public narrative for so long was it just seemed like the exact opposite. Yes. No, it was really straddling both. And that's why, I mean, I guess no pun intended, the bound two video is a great example of that. She was featured as Kanye's sort of muse on in a in a really memorable, really visual music video. Yes. And literally it's like the the lines in the song. One good girl is worth a thousand B words. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's fair. <laughs> I don't know how the level the like parameters around that. But you know, there was a lot of debate and discourse around that music video, but it really asserted Kim as that role for him, I think. Huh. So going back to like Kim and this sort of like, or even just all of the Kardashian mothers, because Kendall doesn't have any children. Yes. I wonder, what do you think their motherhood narratives say about societal expectations of mothers, maybe even specifically millennial mothers and millennial motherhood? Like, how do you see the Kardashians reinforcing or challenging those notions? 
They definitely exemplify the do-it-all feminism. You can get it done at work, and then you can come home and take care of your kids. And and of course, they have so many resources and the ability to do that. Right. But it, it lays right. out that model quite dramatically. And I think people would have a harder time with these women if they didn't have children. And they were they were just viewed only as like Hillary Clinton type of girl boss, like power hungry, whatever those exaggerations, those caricatures of female power become. They would be seen as too shrill, too power hungry, too masculine if they didn't mm. have this, you know. And I don't think no. it's why they're doing it, but it, it helps, you know. No, that was actually part of the reason why I asked you because I was thinking, I was like, yeah, the, just like your average successful woman, right? Yes. A, a average woman with career success. It's almost threatening to see her unattached without children or without a partner of some sort. Yes, it's hard to picture her without it. And for what it's worth, back to that JFK comparison, he wasn't so camera ready and so camera friendly until Jackie entered the picture and kind of helped his image. The image of like a soft, idyllic family helps. And looking at even how it was generative for both Kim and Kanye's public images, he would still be Kanye, I think, with or without that marriage. But it did iconize them in like that Jackie and John kind of way too. Like the power of Kimye was was major and defining. And so there's this that element of a very like perfectly mediated family that brought a lot of power. Like I said earlier, I first spoke with MJ Corey back in September, but since then, Kanye seems to have torpedoed both his public image and just about every business partnership he's ever had due to a series of bigoted remarks. And since everything that Kanye does affects Kim's public narrative, well, I had to call MJ back. So MJ, since we last talked, a lot has changed in the Kim Kardashian multiverse. What do you make of... Kim's response to this whole situation thus far. This new turn that Kanye's taken to make the loss of all these major partnerships worth it. Like he's going to have to do something with it. And there's money to be made from the right wing with him. Um, oh, wow. And I do feel like Kanye is sort of emerging as the essential sort of Trumpist figure right now. So Kim's response was self-restrained for a while. And then notably, she went out to dinner, according to TMZ, with Ivanka Trump at the Beverly Hills right. Hotel. Yes. Right. And apparently oh. Kim was overheard talking to Ivanka about anti-Semitism. And then the next day, Kim made her long-awaited story post condemning, not specifically what Kanye is saying, but condemning anti-Semitic rhetoric. Um, and I think there's something interesting about that because Kim likes to play both sides. She said before that she's socially liberal, but fiscally conservative. And she's never fully committed to a party, but she's been very aligned with establishment Democrats. So I think she doesn't want to lose the right entirely by fully condemning Kanye. That's sort of like my read on it. Wow. Yeah. It felt very cautious. I also think if we're going by this theory that Kanye is aligning himself with a certain kind of Trumpism. That's so bizarre. But also, I mean, I guess kind of astute when you think about how things have sort of played out with them so far. But I wonder, what does the fallout from Kanye's actions say about the size of the influence of the Kardashian machine? This is an example of sort of the political establishment and entertainment collapsing more and more, which is what Neil Postman really predicted in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, about um, politics as spectacle. I think that that sounds about right. It's obviously, since Donald Trump was president previously, there's like a well-trod path to be able to take 
power that you have in the pop culture sphere and and really end up with a heck of a lot of power in the political sphere. Totally. Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's so wild to think about. I know. After all the latest headlines, would you say the Kardashians still fit the narrative of America's family? Yeah, because they're never perfectly America's family in that they reflect or represent like everyone in America, but they do reflect mm. and represent the systems as they're evolving. So I still think that they are that reflection, again, whether we like it or not. It's kind of like if you're showing me a Kardashian, you're showing me your values, yes. basically. Oh, it's totally, it's an inkblot test for sure. That's writer MJ Corey, expert on all things Kardashian. You can find her online as Kardashian Colloquium. She also runs a Substack newsletter called Deconstructing the Kardashians, all spelled with K's, of course. Okay, so the Kardashians used beauty as the foundation for their entire syndicate, but a lot. I mean, a lot of other celebrities have started their own beauty and skincare lines. What are all these people trying to sell us? And why are we buying? That's coming up next. Stick around. My next guest is also well acquainted with the business of the Kardashians and the power they hold. Jessica DeFino is a beauty reporter and cultural critic, but at one point she actually worked as an editor for the Kardashian-Jenner apps, which meant she received a lot of free luxury skincare samples. That eventually backfired on my face, on my skin, and on my soul. The products, the work, the paycheck, which she says was not even enough to afford the gas she needed to get to work eventually took their toll, and she began to really examine the beauty boxes she once joyfully received. It really started my whole journey with learning, like, how does the skin actually function? And that was a big light bulb moment for me, separating function of the skin from skincare products, separating care from consumerism. I talked with Jessica about a trend that's been snowballing for the last few years, celebrity beauty lines, like the ones the Kardashians have. And she's got all the answers from what these celebs are actually selling to the reasons the face was left behind in the body positive movement. In the world of beauty, skincare seems to really be having this huge moment. Why do you think it's such a big focus of the beauty industry right now? Oh, there are so many reasons why skin is having a big moment. Color cosmetics are sometimes seen as superficial or like a vapid pursuit Skincare has all of these claims to health and wellness, so it's easier for people to feel like they are taking care of themselves, that this is for their health, their well-being, even their mental health, mm. and not feel like they're funneling time into perpetuating beauty standards, um, even though that is, for the most part, what skincare is as well. <laughs> but still, a, a lot of people, a lot of consumers are looking to people to influence their purchasing decisions, especially around skincare, because I feel like we've reached this huge like zenith point where it feels like every celebrity or influencer has a skincare brand. Why do so many celebrities have skincare brands now? I do think money is the main driver. <laughs> Celebrities have always been very involved in the beauty industry, but traditionally they have been more involved in the way of endorsement deals. So they would be the face of an established skincare brand or a fragrance mm. brand or a cosmetics brand. And I think just with the way the world is moving, it 
doesn't seem as lucrative of of a position to be the face of somebody else's brand when you could pretty easily be the face of your own brand. So I do think there's an element of control, there's an element of capitalism, and then there's mm-hmm. also the element of just fame. So this is the thing. The thing that gets me with celebrity skincare lines is how they're selling a product that did not help them to achieve the like the clear, glassy, plump skin that they have now. Yes. Like even thinking specifically about like, say, Jennifer Lopez, right? Mm-hmm. Like she came out with the skincare line a couple of years ago. She has been known to have very clear, beautiful skin for like two decades. It's not like she was using her <laughs> Jennifer Lopez skin <laughs> products like back in 2009. Like she just came up with these. That's not why her face looks like that. It is so true. I mean, celebrities have quote unquote good skin, the cultural uh-huh. ideal of good skin because of strong genetics, expensive facials, injectable fillers, maybe even some light surgery. <laughs> and then they're turning around and saying, if you buy these products that I just came up with, even though you've been idolizing me for 20 years, you can look like me too. Like what is what is quote unquote good skin? What does that mean? I personally despise the term good skin. I think good skin is an excellent example of how beauty has been wrapped up in morality. Mm. Beauty functions in society as an ethical ideal. And we have been fed messages since you know, the minute we pop out of the womb that to be a good person is to be a beautiful person. You know, you even look at like Disney princess movies, um, you look at the princess who's good and you look at the villain who's ugly. Like we get these messages constantly. I do think that the idea of good skin shifts over time as beauty standards and beauty trends do. Mm -hmm. Currently, I think the ideal of good skin is very smooth, extremely shiny, wet looking. There is no allowance for changes in tone or texture It's very flat, glass-like. It reflects the state of our largely virtual digital lives. You know, we're expecting our faces to look like a screen. Hmm. And it's so interesting because when you look back on like the history of beauty and the history of beauty standards, this isn't really a new phenomenon. So for instance, like when movies first came out, and we could see actresses and on the screen, the lighting wasn't that great. The camera quality wasn't that great. And it lent this sort of blurred, ethereal look to actors and actresses. And all of a sudden, people were like, this is what somebody famous and worthy looks like. I want to look like that too. Every advancement in screens, in cinema, in digital has had that moment And we are trying to adapt our real-life human faces to a virtual, hyper-real standard of beauty. So to talk about Kim Kardashian for a second, who just put out her own skincare line, you wrote about an interview of hers where she said that if she had to eat poop every day in order to stop aging, she would. What do you think the marketing around her product says about where we are as a society? Because she gave that quote to the New York Times. Someone like her knows what she's saying if she's talking to the New York Times. Exactly. She gave that quote to the New York Times, and then she doubled down on it in an interview for Allure magazine um, a couple of weeks later. So she said it twice. She's been very clear that she would eat poop (laughs) if it would make her look younger. (laughs) I think it says a lot about the state of modern beauty marketing and modern skincare marketing. 
because in that very same New York Times interview, the Times noted that Kim Kardashian, for her skincare line, is opting not to use the term anti-aging to market any of her products. They don't want to use this negative connotation of anti-aging. However, when you come out in that same article and say that you would eat excrement to look younger, you're perpetuating anti-aging ideology. And I think this is a really important thing to note because in the beauty industry at large, we are seeing sort of a backlash to negative sounding terms like anti-aging, but the underlying ideology hasn't changed. Like our society and our beauty industry in particular is more youth obsessed than ever It's just that these messages are more being told in the underlying marketing stories, in the models being used, in the products being pushed, in the injectables being normalized. Like we are living in a youth glorifying culture, even if we are like, oh, I'm not going to say anti-aging. To like bear down on this a little bit more, why do we not want to use the term anti-aging and yet still don't want to age? Like what's beneath that? Anti-aging at its core is ageism, plain and simple. It is internalized ageism. And of course, the underlying ideology hasn't changed because we live in a deeply ageist society. You know, we value members of society uh, largely for their productivity. Your productivity and your value to the economy wanes the older you get. We don't have equity for the elderly. We don't have sufficient medical care for the elderly. We don't have a lot of resources in place that would make aging seem like an appealing proposition. Mm. We also live in a very surface-level society. So if we can take away some of our age anxiety by temporarily erasing our wrinkles with a shot of Botox, Mm. um, we're going to go for that because we have been (laughs) trained to want a quick and easy sweep-it-under-the-rug fix for what is actually a societal problem. So I'm not a big, I just never have been a big makeup person. It's just never been a super huge thing for me. Day to day, usually I don't wear any, but I noticed that increasingly in professional situations, like I feel like if I'm getting dressed and I see my face and I don't have it, I'm like, it's almost like my brain tells me that I I look incomplete in a certain way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a message that we have been fed by beauty culture for pretty much our whole lives. I mean, to contextualize it, I like to frame beauty culture as diet culture's face-focused fraternal twin (laughs) because I think people are really familiar with diet culture and how insidious it is and the things that it does to our minds and our self-perception. It's what diet culture does but for your face. (laughs) So like, it's totally understandable that you would feel that way. I mean, I feel that way. I put on concealer and and a brow gel for this interview because I was like, maybe I'll be on camera. And, you know, this is the stuff that I've been deconstructing for, you know, the better part of a decade now, but it still exists within me because I still exist within society (laughs) that tells me I need to look professional and put together. What I always say when, when this comes up is like, we have to be gentle with ourselves. We have to understand that beauty culture is insidious and it does affect us psychologically and it does do a lot of damage and it's okay to participate in some of these beauty norms because they do still Mm -hmm. affect us on a professional level. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing is just to be aware of it, to divest when you can, when it feels safe, when it feels like it isn't a threat to your professional Mm -hmm. and financial well-being, and to just keep talking about it. Because I think right now, um, beauty especially gets praised as um, self-expression 
and self-care and empowerment. And of course, beauty can be those things. Like there is a powerful case for makeup as self-expression and as art. And I love using makeup in that way. But just because these things can be true doesn't mean that they are always true. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they're the primary ways that beauty is being used. Like primarily physical beauty today is being used as a tool of conformity, complacency, control, and consumerism. Hmm. You brought up um, diet culture. I can't think about diet culture without also thinking about body positivity, mm-hmm. like the connection between body positivity and sort of beauty culture and, and where they kind of will intersect or overlap or not makes me think about another influencer who was recently marketing skincare, Katie Storino. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for people who are not familiar, she's a businesswoman known as a body positive model, very famous on Instagram. And yet not long ago, she was marketing Botox on her Instagram page in a post that has since been deleted. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, her whole message is body positivity. And yet she was, you know, pushing Botox. And I I know influencers, they make money in lots of different kinds of ways and sell lots of different kinds of ads. But that felt dissonant. Like it, it almost feels like skincare is divorced from the body positive movement. Yes, Yes, I 100% agree. There is a huge disconnect there. The body positivity has has rarely extended above the neck in popular culture, (laughs) which is always concerning to me. The standard of beauty is a set of parameters. Like you, Mm. there's some room for for change. I think people can understand the idea of maybe having a fat body but a pretty face. Like those have always sort of been like a consolation prize. Like, well, maybe I'm fat, but I have such a pretty face. Mm -hmm. And so these parameters still exist, and the body positivity movement did not address those parameters at all. So we see a lot of body acceptance influencers like Katie Storino preaching about accepting your body and loving your body and funneling the the brain space that they have freed up and worrying about their body image to their face. Mm-hmm. And something that I always like to say is skincare culture is just dewy diet culture. Like, And you can make <laughs> these really easy swaps to see if a piece of content feels right to you. So for instance, I think in Katie Storino's Botox post, she was talking about erasing her frown lines. Right. But if you swapped the word frown lines for stretch marks, would that content, would that anti-aging, anti-wrinkle content still feel good if it was telling mm. you you had to get rid of your stretch marks? Like there's really no difference between these things. It's just that we have separated body from face and body from skin. And I really just hope that it's time that we bring all of this together and can see how we have been like collectively bamboozled by diet culture and beauty culture and skincare culture. And they all stem from the same forces. It almost feels like there's this like algebraic equation, like body Mm. size, race, gender presentation, skin, age. You can have, you know, a certain type of features or a certain skin tone, but your hair has to have a certain kink to it or curl to it. It has to be absolutely straight. It feels like like there's a conventional beauty standard where you have to constantly be accounting for quote unquote perceived flaws mm-hmm. that fall outside of these narrow norms. And like you can't sort of be almost quote unquote flawed mm-hmm. in more than two or three aspects. Otherwise, you fall outside, you fall too far outside of like conventional 
Yes. Beauty norms. And I don't I don't think I'm like imagining this. <laughs> no, no, you're not at all. That is exactly how it works. I used to love watching America's Next Top Model. I mean, didn't we all back uh, then? <laughs> yes. And there was one season, I don't know if this was like a consistent thing that Tyra Banks said, but there was one season in particular where I remember she talked about this idea of being flossom. And she encouraged the models <laughs> yes. to pick out their one flaw and really play it up. So like her flossom thing was her big forehead. I remember. I mean, it has stuck with me for probably 20 years now. You're only allowed to have one flaw. And yeah. so whenever that concept of parameters comes up, I think of the scam of being flossom. <laughs> Okay, so I've been reading your work for some time. The thing I think about, though, with regard to beauty, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is like divesting from, like coming from where I'm coming from as a Black woman, it's hard for me to imagine divesting from something that I never really felt fully welcomed into in the first place, from mm -hmm. having like, and I'm on the lighter side and I still can't mm -hmm. like buy makeup at many places, you know? And you said something earlier about like, divesting when it feels safe. But I think for a lot mm. of people with regard to beauty, some people literally are not safe. Yes. Divesting from beauty even a little bit. I think that's such a valid point. Like beauty culture is part of reinforcing racism and colorism. And you can see this in the products that are on offer. For example, mm -hmm. you can look at like any foundation range of most beauty brands pre-Fenty. And you would see, you know, 20 shades for lighter skinned women and maybe three shades for dark skinned women to choose from. Yeah, This is not like a flaw in the beauty system. It's a design of the beauty system. And it's tempting to champion inclusion as the answer to all of it. Mm. And like to a certain extent it is. Like we should have products available for every person. And I think it's really important to sort of separate these two tracks to equality. Like there is one track where it's all about inclusion and it's all about making everybody feel seen and it's all about having something available for every person. And then there's another track where we abolish beauty standards completely. Like in an ideal world, we should be able to be respected as human beings, no matter what we look like, by virtue of being human beings. So like, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with it. Beauty still feels like something that I think we need to buy into. Even you said you put on some concealer and brow gel mm -hmm. before you came to talk to me today. Why is beauty something that we feel that we need to buy into? Oh, this is such a great question. Beauty is an inherent human longing. Like when I'm critiquing the beauty industry, I am critiquing the industrialized, standardized portions of it. And I never mean to diminish the power and the importance of beauty in our lives. Like I think of beauty as being up there with like freedom, truth, and love. These are inherent human longings. These are spirit things. The human spirit craves and needs beauty. And we appreciate this all over in other ways. You know, we can appreciate the beauty of nature. We can appreciate the beauty of like a, a piece of artwork. 
We need that kind of beauty in our lives. And part of what makes the beauty industry so powerful is that it co-ops this instinctual need, this instinctual craving for this like free, beautiful, energetic, three-dimensional <laughs> version of beauty. And it flattens it into one dimension. And it says, no, beauty is only physical and beauty can only be achieved through these products and these procedures um, with this money. And it, and it really sort of like bamboozles us into believing, okay, that's the beauty that my spirit is craving. <laughs> and that's also why it's so unfulfilling. Mm. We keep buying and we keep trying things and we keep applying things and we keep trying to make ourselves look different because that inherent human longing for beauty is not satisfied by the physical, standardized, industrialized stuff. And I mean, I don't have an answer for it. I don't know how we we get all of us to like connect with that kind of beauty rather than physical appearance. But that's sort of what keeps me going. That's what keeps me interested. I think beauty is so important to our like well-being on a soul level. And it just upsets me so much that we've been fed this one-dimensional, flat, unfulfilling definition of what beauty is. I'm going to be thinking about this for quite some time. Thank you so much for joining us today on It's Been a Minute. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I really loved our conversation. Thanks again to beauty reporter Jessica DeFino. You can find her work on her Substack newsletter, The Unpublishable. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Liam McBain, Janet Ujangli, Jamila Huxtable. It was produced and edited by Jessica Mendoza. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of Programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of Programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's our show for today. See you next week for another episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news. Some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning wherever you get your podcasts.